Let's turn to the book of John as we continue our study. Uh, John chapter 1, this morning we'll be looking at verses 35 to 41. And as you turn there, I want to thank you for your joint commitment to Christ. You, you float around in just the, the everyday world in which we live, and you can kind of think that you're crazy and things are falling to pieces. And then you show up to a place like this, and you realize there are a bunch of other people who have put Christ first as well, <laughs> and you're not crazy. He is first. He does reign. Things are good. You leave, and then it just seems like everything just goes to pop once more. But I love being reminded and reformed every Sunday by God's Word, the praises of His people, and the testimonies of the saints. And so we have more forming and shaping to do this morning as we look specifically to God's Word, continuing our study in the book of John uh, the text today will take us from verse 35 uh, all the way down to verse 41. Uh, but I want to start off uh, just by reading uh, the first three verses, beginning at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. How a French tire company ever became the authority for the greatest restaurants in the world, I do not know. Nevertheless, in the wide world of fine dining, the Michelin star is the ultimate hallmark of culinary excellence. The system is simple. An authorized Michelin inspector visits a restaurant and rewards it either zero, one, two, or three stars. Uh, zero means that there's nothing remarkable. They're not even going to comment on it. It will not end up on their list. Uh, in the eyes of Michelin, you don't need to go there. Uh, one star means that it is a very good restaurant. That's all they're saying. It's very good. Two stars means excellent cooking that's worth a detour. Well, there's an escalation, right? There's some places, that's a good place. I would take a detour. I would go out of my way. Three means exceptional cuisine that's worth a special journey. So, like, you would, you would take a special trip to go to this particular place. Now, up to this point, the Michelin rating system makes sense, but there's one aspect of this system in particular that's interesting. The stars are not in any way based on customer reviews. The normal guy or gal gets no say on whether or not this is considered to be a great restaurant. Thus, as trustworthy and authoritative as the guides may be, most normal people won't buy in merely on the positive reviews of some sophisticated culinary elite, as evidenced by the fact that most of us have probably not eaten at Michelin-rated restaurants. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands, even though I want to. But I think we know that it's been most of us who don't. The new places that we typically try are on the basis of word of mouth, right? Or Yelp reviews, which is virtual word of mouth. And this makes sense because credibility is a matter of both the official and the ordinary as it is with restaurants or products on Amazon or movies, etc. Like, we want consumer confidence based on real-life experiences, not just what the experts say. The few times I have seen a movie that has won an award at the Sundance Film Festival, I find myself rarely liking it. Because that's what the officials think. <laughs> But the ordinary person tells me, oh, you should go see this, I'm all in. 
In fact, when I look at uh, the particular movie scene, I will check Rotten Tomatoes to see whether or not I should go to this. And I don't really care that much about the official Rotten Tomatoes score because those people are just the elites. Sometimes they do a good job at assessing it. I like to see what the audience score is. What did they think of it? But the truth is you need both. Even in the restaurant scene, you want to make sure that a place certainly has high standards based on some external measurement, but you also want to hear the customer-based reviews. Like, for example, nobody would want to go to a restaurant that has a C sanitation rating but gets great word of mouth. I'm not going. (laughs) We need the official and the unofficial. We want the quality of review and the quantity or ordinariness of the review. And so we clamor for a high number of reviews when buying. The the reason I bring this up is because as it is with these restaurants and products and movies, etc., our confidence in Christ is increased, humanly speaking, through official and ordinary testimonies regarding who Jesus is and what he's done. Think about that for a second. Humanly speaking, your confidence in Christ is increased on the basis of testimonies, some very official, some more accessible, but both strengthen our confidence in Him. And I know that the desire of of those who are in Christ and gathered here today is that we want this increased confidence in Christ as God who is our hero. We want him to be our ultimate. We want all glory to go to him. We want to know that Jesus is Lord. And yet, as I mentioned last week, we do have this tendency within us to be confident over and argue about things that we cannot really know and that do not ultimately matter, while at the same time being unconfident in that which we do know and does ultimately matter. Our tendency to hold strong opinions and to argue and to have convictions about things that the Word of God does not speak to should embarrass us, not just you, us. When we compare it to the lack of confidence with which we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that's a problem. I mean, just think about the assertions that you've made this week. Some of you have a tendency to correct other people more than others. (laughs) Some of you are maybe a little more reticent, but I imagine that at some point in the last seven days, you told somebody something that you were supposedly sure about. You know the statement. No, 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 that's not right. It's actually. I know you read that online, but actually I read. Like, we have those tendencies, make those statements all the time. They're just, they're convictions. They just kind of come out of us. So, as we assess the last seven days, how many of those were focused on who Jesus is and what he's done? I dare say it is as much as we would want it to be. Now, knowing that that's the case, I don't want to beat anybody up over that. What I want to do is use the God-given text this morning to actually increase your confidence in Christ so that you will make more confident assertions about who he is and what he's done and why he matters. That's actually what the book of John is trying to do. He's given his theological prologue, he's, made his, he's dropped his bomb on this is who Jesus is, but he's going to do more than that before he gets into the meat of his argument, these signs that show us that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, he begins by giving us this testimony of John the Baptist, and then he's going to give us the, the, the testimonies of his first followers. Basically, If John the Baptist has given Jesus an unprecedented, let's imagine this for a second, five Michelin stars, so also the testimonies of the disciples in this text give us the popular level review. Does that make sense? So, theological prologue, verses 1 through 18, Jesus is the ultimate, he is everything, he is God in human flesh. But then there's historical verification, theological introduction, historical verification, 
So the first is Jesus as ultimate. This is Jesus as actual. He really is who he says he is. John the Baptist, we saw that last week. He gave us his testimonies. And here we have the first disciples, the hoi polloi, the everyday, ordinary Joe, speaking to their understanding of who Christ is so that our confidence in him would actually be increased. So here's what we have for those of you who are taking notes today. This text gives us four what I'll call rave reviews, to fortify faith in Jesus as the Son of God. There's four reviews here that will fortify our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, the way this is organized is, is interesting. I could give you the four separately, but I find that when I'm reading the text, and even in your English Bible, it's probably broken up into two paragraphs. Uh, the, the author gives us these testimonies in pairs of two. So, the first testimony we'll look at is Andrew and Peter in verses 35 to 42. And then the next one that we'll look at is Philip and Nathaniel in verses uh, 43 to 51. All right, let's look at this first couple sets of testimonies. Again, this will strengthen our faith. Uh, we already noted in these first two verses that the scene starts off with John the Baptist seems that his uh, ministry frequently crossed paths with Jesus. Don't imagine that they only met one time. You read through the Gospels and you realize that there's this kind of overlapping sequence in which John the Baptist is doing his thing and telling people, hey, make ready for the way of the Lord, he's coming. And then every once in a while, he and Jesus would interact in the same circle. It's at this point, though, in John the Baptist's ministry that things tend to change. Now, instead of actually continuing to teach people on his own, what we find John the Baptist doing is actually transferring people to the school of Jesus. And I need you to think of it in those terms, by the way. You're going to see the term disciple and follow, and, and it all sounds really religious, but it actually isn't intended to be. It's intended to be very educational. So uh, we have schools these days, and they typically take place or they used to take place in classrooms, now they take place in Zoom settings. But you know when you're enrolled in a particular school. Well, the way people received education in that particular time and place in the world is that they would enlist themselves under a particular teacher. There wasn't a public education system. Most people didn't have access to any type of education other than that which would keep them alive. But some people would enlist themselves under a philosopher, a sage, they would follow him around. They would learn from him. Uh, sometimes this would be a lifelong endeavor. Sometimes they would kind of like enroll in seminary, if you will, check this thing out for like six months, live with the guy, listen to his teaching. John the Baptist, you need to understand this, like in that day would be viewed as a traveling teacher. He was a prophet indeed, but he had disciples. People followed him. They, they were of his ministry. Uh, they, would, they were his groupies, if you will. They, they actually listened to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And Jesus, as we'll see in this text, is called on a couple of occasions a rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher. This is someone who also travels around and teaches people a, a superior way. And so in this first text, in this opening scene, we actually see John the Baptist Standing there, he's talking to a couple of his guys, his followers, and wherever it is he is, Jesus passes by, and he finally says, not in some big public pronouncement, but in private conversation, behold, look there, there's the Lamb of God. Now, in the last text, what do we see? We saw John pronouncing this for the religious officials that had gathered there. Here, it's all about the personal following of his guys saying, hey, look, there's the one we've been talking about. The implication is that they should follow him. Continue reading in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, Paul's there. You see that word disciples. Again, rid yourself of the Christianese. Like, a of, of disciple automatically meaning like somebody who is a religiously identified Christian in the 21st century West. The word disciple fundamentally means a learner, literally a follower. So they are then, as learners of John, now becoming learners of Jesus. They don't understand the full import of this yet, but they begin to follow him, and literally they follow him. 
Now, it, it doesn't take a Greek scholar to understand what the word follow means. It means to go from point A to point B and have other people behind you. There's a spatial aspect to the word following, but listen to this, and you could look it up in any lexicon. It not only means something spatial, but it also means something spiritual. Sometimes it can just be so-and-so followed so-and-so from point A to point B. Sometimes it means so-and-so put themselves under the authority of another teacher. And in that sense, John uses an interesting literary form that we call double entendre. He's actually giving you two, two different uh, meanings of the very same word, and he's kind of cluing you in on the fact that, yeah, they're just kind of following behind Jesus, but they're going to end up being followers of Jesus. You're going to see that in verse 38. It says, Jesus turned and saw them following, notice, and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, I just like the visual here. They don't actually tell Jesus that they're going to follow him. Uh, they're just kind of like creepers in the bushes. It's like uh, they're following behind him because they want to hear more. They want to know what kind of stuff he's maybe teaching other people. They want to see him. They want to observe him. And you know how it is if you've ever been followed before. You just kind of pick up on it out of the corner of your eye. Or you could imagine it. <laughs> You're like, I, I think there's somebody behind me. Jesus knows, of course. And so he finally, at some point on his journey, turns around and says, What do you want? <laughs> what are you seeking? Now, as, as the Spirit empowered son of God. He obviously knows what they want, but he wants them to verbalize it. But this is a, just a cool feature of the text. You need to understand, this is written in an oriental culture. If you've never hung around with somebody that's not from the United States of America, there is a tendency for people in eastern parts of the world to be rather indirect. Uh, they don't like to be bold and assertive and upfront. They're more about relationship. They don't want to make any waves. And so people are very careful with what they say. In fact, crazy random thing, but it's totally worth your time at some point. The last chapter in Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, actually shows <laughs> how people from Eastern cultures in many ways were actually leading to a significant rise in plane accidents because the co-pilots wouldn't be direct with the American pilots. They'd be like, hey, there might be a mountain, you know, in the, in the dark up here, just letting you know. <laughs> As opposed to saying, hey, we're about to hit a mountain. So knowing that that's kind of like a, a tendency, you need to get, like, what's going down with these guys. They're not being upfront, bold, American types. Uh, they're actually going to respond to Jesus' statement, what do you want, by saying, well, um, I, we just want to see where you're living. Where, where are you staying? <laughs> you know what the implication is in that? Especially since we know what time it is. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll explain why we know that in a moment. They're saying, hey, can we, can we stay with you? Now, that would seem weird and bold here, but it's not unusual in that culture for people to ask for hospitality from another individual, to ask to spend time with them. Keep in mind, they're way more relational than most Americans are. And so what does Jesus say? He says, what are you seeking? And they said, excuse me, let's think of their response. Rabbi, which means teacher, there we are, where are you staying? So they address him as a teacher. They're basically saying they want to spend more time with him. Potentially, they want to learn from him. And look at what he says in verse 39. He said to them, come, and you will see. It's polite enough. All right, you can come along. You can follow me back to where I am staying. Uh, the, the great rabbis of the day, while they did travel around and teach, they weren't just homeless vagrants. They typically operated out of some kind of a home. That would be their primary place of teaching. And so I want you to catch what's going on here. Jesus is essentially allowing them uh, for a preview weekend in his school. They're going to get to see what's, what's happening. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now again, crossing cultures here, please hang with me. Uh, the tenth hour is not ten o'clock in the morning. In this particular time and place, the hours begin at sunrise. So if sunrise is at seven o'clock, we're actually somewhere around four o'clock in the afternoon. And notice what it says. It says that they stayed with him for the day. Now, you hear that and you think, oh, well, that means they stayed with him when the sun was out. No. And again, they reckoned the day to be 
morning and evening. These guys don't travel at night. We have street lamps all over the place. We've got light pollution like crazy in an area like southwest Florida. You don't know what a dark night's like. And yet in that particular place and culture when the brightest thing that you've got is a torch, you don't travel at night. That's how you get beat up and lose your wallet. So these guys aren't traveling at night. In fact, it would be ultra rude for Jesus to make them travel at night. So he shows them hospitality. They spend time with him. And I want you to see what they learn from this first initial impression with Jesus. This is their review. They've had the experience, John's recording, that they actually made it to the restaurant, if you will. And now we're about to hear what they thought. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What did they deduce and learn from this initial stay in the school of Jesus that this indeed was the Christ, this indeed was the Messiah? I wish that I could somehow like, just infuse all of our minds with the significance of the word Christ. So many of us just think, oh, that must be Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. No, it is his title. And the best way that I can explain to you the significance of this title is for you to imagine every promise made in the Old Testament of a rescuer sent from God who would bring about a final deliverance and lumping it up into one, and that's the Christ. The Christ was the chosen one of God who would bring about his final rescue. Sometimes it was viewed as a great prophet, as in the book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes it was viewed as a suffering servant, as in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes it was viewed as David's son, a chosen king, as in 1 Samuel and Psalm 2. But the point is, we saw it even in our study of the 12, that they were beginning to think that God was going to send one special person who would be specially anointed of him. That's what the word Christ means. It's Hebrew, Meshiach, it's anointed one, one who's been smeared with oil, one who is specially recognized for a, this particular office of being the hero of the world. These guys deduced from one night's stay with Jesus, he's the Christ. In fact, they not only believe it themselves, they're so convinced that they go out and it says the first thing that he does is he goes to tell his brother as soon as he gets back home. He doesn't get back to his job. He doesn't kiss his kids. The first thing that he does is he says, we found the Christ. This is him. This is the one we were looking for. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but this rings true to me. Like, when I am really excited about something, it will be the first thing on my mind, the first thing on my lips. And so here, this ordinary Joe, or this ordinary Andrew, actually comes along and says, here's the deal. He's the one. Now, he would have zero motivation to make this up. And I want to point out something for those of you who may be a little skeptical in here and say, I don't know if I can really trust this because, after all, this is the Bible. I don't really know, like, you know, they're religiously motivated to make themselves look good. But there's something unique in this text, friends, that will help you if you're struggling in faith or if you know someone who is struggling in faith. And that is the fact that the divine record actually gives specific historical details such as the time of day. Now, for most of us, that doesn't mean a thing. The favorite, your favorite fiction novels, the half of you that actually read them, abounds with precision and detail. Western fiction is considered to be credible and good and worth reading if it fills you with details. But that is a 21st century phenomenon. In fact, in the history of literature, typically the, way, the only way that you could verify whether or not the genre of an account is actually historical versus fiction was details versus no details. 
I, I'm not smart enough to have figured this out, so I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of literary expert, but I did actually come across uh, some stunning information uh, that actually makes this uh, more clear. Uh, the particular gentleman's name who had done uh, the research on this was Reynolds Price. He was a, a New York Times reviewed author, a professor of English at Duke University. And in light of his extensive study of the Gospels, again, not somebody that we would normally think of as, you know, conservative Christian guy, actually points out that th- th- this parallel. He says that there's nowhere in, in ancient fiction in which specific details are given like this. Like, nobody thought about Apollo, for example, coming to the sailors of Crete in the form of a dolphin, disclosing to them the location of the, the navel of the world or the oracle at Delphi at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. It's just names, it's just situations, it's just lo- locations. But what we have here is something that is infused with the evidence of an eyewitness account And so what we see is that John, at least in the literature, is actually reporting something that Andrew and Peter saw. This is not some anonymous author from the second century anticipating some kind of realistic fiction, some kind of writing style that wasn't even around at the particular time. And I want you to think about it, by the way. If he was in some way making this up, how ridiculous it would seem. For him to make up a story to a group of Jewish people about a human being being God, he would be laughed off the face of the planet. And then, listen to this, a few years later they're going to die for this and tell other people to do the same? You or your friend have not seriously engaged with the Bible as a piece of historical literature unless you're coming to one of two conclusions. Either this is totally made up or this is absolutely true. You can't say it's something in between. Either faith or the supposed uh, clamoring for some type of extra biblical evidence will stretch you to the points of incredulity. The point is both things are hard to believe. Yes, it is indeed hard to believe that God would send his son in human form to come and die for sin and rise again and be vindicated as the Lord of the universe. But it is also hard to believe that a bunch of first century Jews would make up an account about a man becoming God and then try to convince all their buddies of the same and be tortured by the Roman government. The question is, will you believe in Jesus as the Messiah or will you continue to believe your own worldview? The point that I'm making here, friends, is that this testimony is actually intended to increase credibility. You should read this and think, oh, wow, there's, there was somebody that was there. They, this was their interaction. This was their review. This was their story. The normal guy on the street uh, tells me, hey, I went out to such and such a place and ate the other day. It was fantastic. I had an amazing experience. Even if I don't know him that well, I have a tendency to be like, well, yeah, sure. (laughs) And yet the same thing is being testified here, and we have a whole generation of people who are like, "Ah, well, I don't know. This is real eyewitness testimony. Friends, I want you to understand something. If you're in Christ this morning, your faith is not illogical. It was H.L. Mencken, he was this uh, liberal uh, literary critic in the first half of the 19th century who actually said that faith is an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. That was Mencken's view. Faith is an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. And some of you would be tempted to think, even today, Okay, all right, if I'm really going to believe in Jesus, I'm just going to have to check my mind at the door, and I'm going to take the term that often gets used, a leap of faith. I'm going to step out into the dark. But friends, this is not a leap in the dark. You actually have people who who saw Jesus, who heard him, who touched him, who listened to him, and they're telling you, based on what they knew of the Old Testament and the things that they witnessed at the time, hey, this was true. Rather... Faith is, I like the way John Stott put it, a reasoning trust. It is a reasoning trust, and it rests on credible testimony. 
And this testimony is the written testimony of the apostolic eyewitnesses and the prophetic authorities. It is recorded here in God's Word. It is a fact. So, that's the testimony of Andrew. He switches to Jesus' school. He's affirming him as the Messiah. In fact, he's so convinced of of the discipleship to Jesus is the way to go and the only way to go that it doesn't stop him. He brings his brother Peter in on this opportunity as well. Peter begins to follow Jesus. But that's just two of the rave reviews. We've got two more. Whereas the first feature Andrew and Peter, the second features Philip and Nathaniel. Notice Philip in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, this is fascinating because it's different than the first one. In the first time, what happened? John the Baptist sees Jesus and he said, hey, behold the Lamb of God. Implication, go follow him. This time, Jesus decides that he's going to go from where John is to Galilee, and while he is on the way, he finds this guy named Philip, and he says to him, commands him, you follow me. Now again, religious language aside, there are religious implications for following Jesus, but understand it as the first century people would have read it. Jesus is saying, apprentice yourself to me. Come learn from me. Enroll in my school, if you will but he commands it. That's an unprecedented kind of authority. If a guy's going to give up his livelihood and enroll in a particular school for six months to a year to three years, Philip seems to be interested. It says Philip was from Bethsaida. We know that. And he not only follows Jesus, but look at verse 45. Something about this interchange leads Philip to find Nathanael, notice that in verse 45, and said to him, This is what he said in his interaction with Jesus. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice, this guy, he's done his homework. Like he's actually read the Old Testament before. Like he was pouring over the pages of the Bible, if you will. Every time that he could attend synagogue, he was listening out for this one to come. He knew what to look for. And so he says now, this is him. Nathaniel, you've got to see, this is the one that Moses in the law pointed to. And we see that even through our study of Genesis, these, these indications that there was one who would come to fix all that which was broken. It's the one of who the prophets wrote. All the prophets pointed to the same guy. Who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, grammatically, for those of you who are gra- grammar people, uh, these are called appositives. Positives are when you just stick titles and names right beside one another and you know what it means, equal to, equal to, equal to. So by saying that this is the one that the Old Testament pointed to, they're saying that this is the same person who is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the same person as Jesus, the son of Joseph. Now, all of these make sense to us, except for the last one. The first one, yes, of course, the Old Testament pointed to this guy, that makes sense. The next one we may have a little bit of question with because we're like, hey, I thought Jesus was from Bethlehem. But in that particular culture, you were known by where you grew up, not necessarily where you were born. If you were to ask my wife today, where are you from? She would say North Florida. Where was she born? Paris, Texas. But nobody calls her a liar over that because they know what you mean when you ask the question. And so in a similar way, Jesus indeed was from Nazareth. Now this is going to cause Nathaniel some problem in a moment, but we'll get there. The last one could cause us all a little bit of problem because you'd be like, what, Jesus, son of Joseph? But I want you to keep in mind, folks, that he's just answering, making the statement in the way that anyone would have made it. Legally, the book of Matthew shows us that Joseph adopted Jesus. He is his legal son. And therefore, it only makes sense that he would introduce him to Nathanael as Jesus, the son of Joseph, the one who is legally in the line of David, by the way. I don't know if there's anyone in the room today who has been uh, adopted, but uh, most of you actually wouldn't try to say, I am actually the son of so-and-so. You use the last name of the person who adopted you. It just makes sense. And so also, they didn't use last names. Their last name was typically 
Jesus ben Joseph. That means Jesus, son of Joseph. It's just the way that they identify themselves, the way they narrow themselves down. But the point is, this historical Jesus is the one to whom the Old Testament pointed. And so he makes a huge claim to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's an interesting guy because, like, he doesn't buy it. He's a little skeptical. And again, if you're here today and you're, you're not really sure, maybe you are a little skeptical. You'd identify with this guy. He's not just going to jump right in on the first thing that's presented to him. He initially objects to this grandiose messianic claim, and especially because that Jesus is from Nazareth. Notice this in your text. It says in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, to Philip, Can any good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you're saying, you're saying that he's the Messiah, and I'm asking you, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, there's an interesting thing here. Nazareth wasn't like some particularly despicable place. It was just a particularly unremarkable place. In fact, archaeologists have struggled to find it. They eventually did and have discerned that there was only about 300 people living there. But what's also interesting is that when you do the research, just reading through the account here, you're going to find out that Nathaniel was from Cana, but guess how many people lived in Cana based on archaeological study? 300. <laughs> you know how it is. If you grew up in a small town, you don't expect anything great to come from your small town. I grew up in a pretty small town. I mean, like there was a, the city or whatever that we were supposedly associated with was Greenville. North Carolina, and, no, and the fact that I always have to clarify to people, no, not Greenville, South Carolina, means that most people don't know where Greenville, North Carolina is. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that place. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know the one in South Carolina. Actually, the, the township that I grew up in was called Belvoir, or Belvoir, if you want to be fancy. I think there was about 6,000 people that lived in that. I remember, you know, going to the corner stop, you know, the gas station. I mean, nobody was thinking greatness is coming from that place. In fact, even if I were to, like, extend my experiences out to Greenville, North Carolina, I can't think of a single famous person that's ever come from there. You know, the, this is the best I've got. There's a Division I school there, East Carolina University. My mom teaches there. They had two famous people come from there that I know of. One is Wes Craven, who produced uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And the other is Sandra Bullock. But she and he are not even from Greenville. They just went to school there. And do you get the point? If you're a small-town person, you expect greatness to come from somewhere like the District of Columbia or New York or Los Angeles. Not from Nazareth. So Nathaniel's kind of right. I mean, like for us, in an American context, we think, oh, this will be the perfect hero story. Small town guy, climbs his way up to the top, becomes the king of Israel. But nobody thought that way in that world. It, there was no small town hero. If you were going to be a hero, you came from a palace. You would come from Bethlehem. You would be raised in Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, in that kind of collectivist culture, there were no individuals breaking through. Think Indian caste system. If you were born poor, you stay poor. And if you were born powerful, you stay powerful. And this guy coming from Nazareth, he is not rich and he is not powerful. There ain't no way that he can be who you say he is. And it's so fascinating to me that Philip here is actually going to repeat the same words that Jesus repeated to Andrew and Simon earlier. I don't know if they talked. It says that they, were, they grew up in the same town. Maybe they were friends. Maybe they knew each other. Maybe they had talked. But he's going to repeat the exact same words that Jesus did, and here they are. Come and see. Come and see. And so in verse 47... Jesus saw Nathanael. He, he's obviously open to the idea of, like, what was it going to hurt to come and see? And he saw him coming toward him, and he said of him, notice this, he's never met the guy before. And remember, he just met Philip, like, on the way. So Philip's a stranger. Nathanael's a stranger. And yet he says, as the guy's walking up to him, behold, he's speaking to the people around him, an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite. Basically saying, here's a guy, here's an Israelite that's characterized by truth. 
in whom there is no deceit. He says it positively and negatively. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you. Don't worry, you're going to see bigger miracles later, but I do want you to know that there is something miraculous in this in its own right. He is actually supernaturally displaying a, a level of perception that mere mortals do not have. He identifies Nathaniel by the very core of his personality and gets it right. You ever gone to the fair and you walk by one of those booths and it's like, guess, guess your weight, guess your age? Well, uh, I've never been too impressed by those things because you can actually see by looking at somebody for the first time, oh, I think this guy looks like he's about 200 pounds. This person looks like they're about 40 years old. I mean, like, it's not impressive. You could deduce that, but how is it that if I just walked to you on the street and you didn't know me, that you would be able to know, like, the core of my personality, as if I took like a, a Clifton strength finder test and of the, 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 the 30 plus things that could be there, you just nail like my greatest gift. I mean, like you would be able to assess, you know, the, the, one of the 16 personality profiles and just know that that was my thing. That's exactly what Jesus does here to the degree that we learn that Nathaniel, and you've already seen this, is a rather frank, open, honest guy. He's not a diplomat. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. And so that's why he says, hey, I don't believe you. I'm calling you out on this one. No good thing comes from Nazareth. So he says, come and see. And without any knowledge of this conversation, Jesus says, behold, a true Israelite, one who's characterized by truth, a man in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel, you, you tell it like it is. And Nathaniel is impressed by this. Notice what he says. He answered him and said, Rabbi. Notice now he calls him teacher, great one. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, I actually jumped the gun here. <laughs> Nathaniel comes to this conclusion. Sorry, look at verse 48. After he says, how do you know me? Indicating that he got his personality right. Jesus answered him and said, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. So think of that supernatural perception. He supernaturally perceived his personality, and he also supernaturally perceived his placement. He says, I know where you were exactly when Philip came to you. I saw you sitting under that fig tree. Now again, the implication is that Jesus wasn't within eyeshot to see this. And so the fact that Jesus supernaturally perceived his personality and supernaturally perceived his placement leads him to exclaim in full gusto and vigor, a guy that cuts it straight, a one that like shoots it like it is, he says... This is the king of Israel. This is the son of God. Notice we have further eyewitness testimony. We have another rave review. Here's another satisfied customer. Indeed, this guy is who he said he is. And Jesus answered, I love this. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Uh, let me translate that. You ain't seen nothing yet. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. Notice that. I know you see it all the time, but you actually don't see it all the time. What you a lot of times see in the Gospels is truly, I say to you. But here he says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is such an interesting phrase because it would be the phrase that rabbis would use at synagogue. Listen to this. They'd be sitting around the outside, and a guy would get up, and he would deliver the word, or he would actually give a homily or a sermon, and he would never say that of himself. Only an outside person could affirm the truth of something. And so the outsiders would say, amen, amen. That's the actual word from which we get amen. Truly, truly, verily, verily. This is right. This is true. I agree. And here, instead of letting anybody else say it, Jesus takes this authority upon himself. He says, truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you, this is fact. Listen to this. You will see greater things than these. If you thought it was impressive that I could read your personality or know where you were sitting at the time that Philip came to you, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will indeed see something even greater than this. And the thing that he says sounds strange to us, but would have sounded very familiar to them. What is it that they will see? The you, by the way, there is plural. Y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, the normal person reading through that today, you see it and you're like, what in the world is that talking about? 
But this is a historical illusion. I mean, they're referencing something that these guys would have known really, really well. Like if I were to talk to you about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, you can't imagine not knowing what that means. But if I were to talk to somebody from a village somewhere in Togo, Africa, about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, they wouldn't have a clue what we were talking about. It's outside of their historical purview. This was squarely within their historical purview. They have a religious slash political history, and they're all tied into one. And one of their greatest ancestors, Jacob, who we read about earlier today in Genesis chapter 28, at one point when he needed a special validation from God, was afforded this vision, this dream, in which there was actually a ladder that descended from heaven and angels were coming from the presence of God and going up into the presence of God, leading him to declare that God is in this place. God is nearer than we believed. And what he's saying here is mind-blowing. Notice he doesn't say that he sees angels ascending and descending upon a ladder. He says, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The access to heaven. You will know and understand that heaven invades the natural world and the natural world can make its way into heaven through him, the Son of Man, this one who is the human, who is identified with the Messiah. We'll see that phrase, son of man, and I'll explain it more on another day. But in the meantime, know that it is a cryptic way of Jesus identifying himself as the chosen messianic ruler, but it's cryptic enough so that he can get away with it without actually being brought up for heresy charges. But what is he saying? I am the gate of heaven, and you will see it, and you will know it, and it will be a fact. It's going to be proof positive. It's going to be way better than any of those other miracles that you saw. And so in light of this, we are actually reminded once more that this is fact. We have verified reviewers sharing their story through John. And listen to this, those of you who are skeptical or have friends that are such. Even the skeptic here, the guy who wants to check out all the facts, even he comes to understand the same. It's interesting the way that Jesus responds with those who are skeptical. The only other instance we have of such skepticism within the ranks of those who are close to him is at the end of the book with Thomas. And and when Thomas doubts and Jesus first interacts with him, what does he do? He doesn't say, you idiot. Why didn't you believe? The first words out of his mouth to a guy that doubts are this, shalom, peace. You want more? You'll find out more. Touch my side. Touch the scars in my hands. In a similar way to those who even would struggle to believe and understand, Jesus says to someone like Nathaniel, all right, believe what you got, but you ain't seen nothing yet. There's more to come. Just trust where you can. And Nathaniel exclaims, this is him. And so we have in this account one of those unavoidable solicitations for your feedback. You know what it's like. You buy something, you use a service, and they start clogging up your inbox with, give us a survey, tell us what you think. Those things get on our nerves because we just had a transaction, we didn't have a relationship. But when we have a relationship with individuals, we have a meaningful experience and a connection with someone, we don't need the feedback to be solicited. It just comes. We just tell. And you know, that's what the whole book of John is trying to do, to get you to the point where you so believe in Jesus that you just tell. You're just that convinced. John 20, 31. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And even the official testimony of John and the average and ordinary testimonies of Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel are intended to strengthen your faith, to increase your credibility in Christ. 
Thus, this text would have us come and see so that we can go and tell. The text would have us come and see so that we can go and tell. I'll say it one more time. This is the point. The text would have us come and see so that we may go and tell. We've heard from these other men, but what say you? Have you come and seen? I want you to understand this morning, especially those of you who are guests with us today, I say this kindly, you are invited even this morning to experience Jesus by faith. I mean, these guys here have testified throughout their combined testimony that the remedy of the curse of sin in this world and in our hearts has been remedied by God who entered into humanity to provide right standing and forgiveness through the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And through their own eyewitness testimony, they're going to say, at risk to their own life, listen to me, they would literally die over this. They didn't have to, but they would die saying that he rose again, which vindicated him as God's ruler and rescuer, and that he would come again to receive those who actually trust in him for everlasting life, and he will come back and exercise righteous wrath for all eternity upon those who have rebelled or refused this grace in Christ. You're being invited into relationship with him this morning. Come and see. This is not some leap in the dark. This is based on eyewitness testimony. And yeah, you won't have it all figured out. And no, you don't get as many facts as you want to, but you've got some. You have enough facts to have faith. John the Baptist spoke it. Moses spoke it. John the Baptist validated it. The disciples reviewed it with rave reviews. The church has been continuing, listen to this, for 2,000 years. Can you imagine? A fourth of the people on the planet in some way, shape, or form have said, this is true. But what about you? Will you believe? Will you trust? I would call on you to believe the reviews and then behave accordingly. Listen to me. If you're saying, by the way, that you believe in Christ there will be some inevitable outflows of this. Can I tell you one really practical one? You'll fully identify yourself with Jesus Christ in baptism, publicly stating that your old life is dead and that your new life is beginning and that you're identifying with him. That is something that happens after you confess Christ as Lord. You put it on public, you put it on display, and guess what? Through that, you are now publicly identified with him and the church comes around you and continues to strengthen you and help you through the ongoing struggles you may have with faith and obedience. We're in this thing together. So if you've truly, credibly believed, confess him as Lord, identify with him in baptism, and then walk with him in the company of his church. That's what it would look like. Some of you have already come and seen. And in light of that, the admonition for us is simple. We should go and tell. And, and this is where, like, we always get into inevitable guilt zone. And so I, I'm going to check the guilt card. I've got it here. You see it? I'm ripping it. I'm throwing it behind me. But I'm still going to say go and tell. But I want to help you with it. Because I think we've overcomplicated it. As we look at this particular text, there's actually some stuff that's modeled for us here. There's three things that are modeled that simplify the go-and-tell process. I, I will alliterate them just for the sake of being preacher-like. But essentially, uh, the, the things that we see here are, are basically that they have received Christ themselves, right? That they've had this own, their own personal interaction. And then they rehearse Christ to others. And they redirect people to the word. Receive, rehearse, redirect. Now, it's clear that they came to their own understanding that Christ was the ultimate. He was the Savior. He was the hero. I want you to get that. If 
I understand, if you're saying that you're in Jesus this morning, that you have received Christ. But what I mean by that, specifically, is that you have actually received him as everything he says himself to be. You see him as the solution for the world. You see him as the forgiver of sin. You see him as the enabler for life. I mean, he is everything to you. I appreciate Phil actually praying today, again for our church, we pray it all the time, that we all would be delighting in Christ first and foremost above everything. Until Jesus is good news to you, you will not share good news. And so if you are more enamored by something else, of course you're not going to go and tell. And we do indeed, friends, get distracted. That's why Paul had to go to the Colossians and remind them, hey, Christ is ultimate. He's everything. Don't be deceived by the vain philosophies of this world. So we're constantly trying to remind you, what you're looking for, what you're striving for ultimately is still Jesus. Receive that. All right. Next. Reflect that. So you're actually going to tell other people the good stuff that you found out right? It just makes sense. You had a great experience at the beauty salon, ladies, you tell somebody about. You have a great experience with Jesus. You know what what he's done in your heart and your life. I mean, even on a Sunday, if you enjoyed being here today, don't leave great Yelp reviews for Faith Bible Church. Leave great reviews for Jesus. Go out and tell people, hey, I don't know what you did this weekend. Let me tell you what I did this weekend. I was just reflecting on the goodness of Christ and the fact that he actually did come to rule and reign, that I can believe his message, and that he is actually providing salvation to all who would call upon him, and I just wanted to share that with you. It was awesome. Could you imagine what would happen if that was the regular occurrence of life here at Faith Bible? There is a receiving, but there is then a reflecting. You know, we're actually, like, telling other people about him, but here's where things get interesting. We redirect people to the scriptures because the truth of the matter is your personal anecdotal testimony is not going to get the job done because, frankly, somebody from the church of Satan could leave out there one Sunday and say, oh, I had a great service today and everything was amazing. The anecdotes aren't going to ultimately convince anyone who doesn't believe. The word of God will. It is the verified testimony of the Word of God that will ultimately make the credible difference in the lives of those that you love. John the Baptist is an authoritative, recognized prophet. These men also will be recognized ultimately as prophets. We don't need more of our personal testimonies, though they're good, but what we need are the sacred words of Scripture pouring into us. One said it this way, I love it. He said, let's realize that the authoritative eyewitness testimony of the apostles is the primary testimony now written in the New Testament. Not our own subjective experiences. Only then will we realize, finally, that the single most effective thing that we can do to get unbelievers to believe is to have them read the New Testament. Friends, faith depends on biblical testimony. This is life-giving word. I know that we talk about what are ways that we can better evangelize, what are better strategies that we have. You know what, the reason why I love the course that we just finished on Christianity Explored? Because they're using the Bible. They're reading through the Gospel of Mark and they're saying, hey, well, you make the claim for yourself. This is what these guys said. What do you think? Friends, that should be normal flow for us. We should regularly be able, like you think you've got to close the deal like every time you talk to somebody and say, hey, why don't you pray and receive Christ? Stop that. Why don't you just try to get them to read the Bible for themselves or read it with them and say, hey, why don't you read the book of John and tell me what you think? We have a little resource actually out there in the narthex called one-to-one Bible reading. It blows my mind that anybody made money with a book called one-to-one Bible reading because you would have thought that we would already would have known that that was the strategy. Read the Bible with people. Friends, you need to receive, you also need to reflect, but you need to redirect people ultimately to the scriptures and say, hey, what says the word of God? Why don't you check it out? Play the long game. And that's how you go and tell. Kind of takes the pressure off, right? Not like, all right, did I anticipate their every objection? Do I know everything? You're just letting the word of God loose. And then Christ will be honored. So, let us who are in Christ leave a rave review.
I would like that review to begin in prayer. I want it to follow with a song of testimony to the superiority of Christ. And then let's take it one step further to share that review with one other person at some point this week. We'll testify here as a practice together in song. And then may God give us opportunity to do it again at some point this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us your Son, who is the Christ, the King, the Ruler, the Rescuer, the Reconciler, the the gate between heaven and earth. And we're not alone in thinking this. This isn't some leap of faith in the dark, but it's reasonable trust. Oh, Father, strengthen the faith of your people here. For those who are not even in Christ yet, who are skeptical, who have yet to to commit to to, to Christ, to, to place their trust in Him, or give them life this day, even as they hear our testimony and song, may they believe it and trust that Jesus is greatest. Jesus is better. It's in his name we pray. Amen.